This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 137. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. Bonjour, je m'appelle Lamoriasa, and dans cet episode, nous faisons un review Mujuji du Le Matre de Manga no Kurosawa. C'est magnifique! Uh oh, I think, I, I, I think the language settings are off. Oh no! Zetalors! Oh man, here I I I need to set my co-host back to back uh, to. Let's do more repair side. No, okay, okay. Here, here, here's here's the. How's this? Is this better? Is this better? Okay, here's here's the switch. Okay, I think I fixed it. I mean, I fixed it on my end, so I don't know what you you were doing. I was speaking English before you turned on whatever switch you oh, turned well, on. Oh well, I, I I flipped the switch on your back. But I was. I was already speaking English. Wait. So if you had flipped that switch that is supposedly on my back, that you are somehow able to flip from a remote location <laughs> half the country away. <laughs> oh no, room. you found out my secret. <laughs> I guess you, you can instantly transport. I guess you can be in two places at once, just like a certain... Uh, person who tells tall tales he claims to have been somewhere where he probably was not in this manga and yes we are reviewing Mujirushi from the Okirisawa there was a reason I was speaking French why I had my language setting scrambled there it's because the plot of this manga is about a father-daughter team who's recruited by a very familiar face from another popular manga franchise to go abroad to France to visit the Louvre to steal a very famous painting. And, of course, we were reviewing a Naoki Urasawa manga, and we gotta get one of the biggest enthusiasts of Naoki Urasawa that we know, Aiden on. And it was a great conversation. Oh, V-Lord was also here, too. And <laughs> we had a lot of fun discussing the series. And, of course, Rosal's reinterpretation of a certain famous, iconic manga character. And how this manga is both similar and different to a lot of the thriller stories he tells. So it was a great conversation. And I think you guys are going to really enjoy it. I think. It's nice still to have released a somewhat, I don't know if it's horror, but it's a, it's a little bit of a trailer, so it's appropriate for the Halloween season. It's just winding to a close. And hey, j- just also, just in time for, uh, well, kind of just in time for the for the newest season of uh, Osamatsu-san to, to come out this anime season, so. Yeah, see, that's another bit of good timing there, too. And I guess that also supposed the way that, yes, uh, the character I refer to comes from the Ozumatsu-san franchise, a certain Francophile that you all know and love and love to imitate his very iconic pose. And scream is very iconic catchphrase. Yo, you'll figure, you're, you'll figure it out who it is when, when you listen to the actual episode. If you haven't already figured out, it's, it's probably obvious. I mean, I, I don't know who it could be. <laughs> it's, it's totally Chibita. It's totally Dion. Dion is the the mastermind thief who lobbed the Louvre. I mean, look, they they have as big a chance of going to France as I as, as I have. <laughs> but yeah, especially in quarantine times. <laughs> oh boy, tell me about it. Yeah, so I had a lot of fun with this conversation too. I think I mentioned it in the ep- in the discussion, but 
uh, this is our first Naoki Urasawa work, and definitely not the last that uh, we've covered on the show. So I think that's a that's cause for celebration. I'm glad that we finally yeah, could like talk is, about this stuff. Yeah. So yeah, first of many, I'm sure we will eventually cover hopefully all the works of his that are released in English. Oh but yeah, but this was a good first step, a good first taste of Urasawa for us. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't think we should waste any more time. I think we should head right into the discussion and uh, and make our way to the city of love. Is is that is that what France is called? I don't know what it's called. Paris is Paris. There we go. Yes, the city yeah. of love. Paris. I mean, French is a language of love. It is. It is. Yeah. Allons-y. The sign of dreams would be the buck feet of a Francophile con man. Today we are talking about our very first Naoki Urasawa series, and it is definitely a strange one that definitely celebrates art and uh, definitely celebrates a lot of interesting things as well as exploring and using interesting ideas and characters. But yeah, we're talking about Mujirushi, The Sign of Dreams, recently released over here by Viz, and we've got some great folks on to talk about it, namely our returning guest, Urasawa and lettering expert, Aiden. Hello, thanks for having me on. Really glad to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on. We last had you on uh, to talk about the Nooki Urasawa exhibit last year, so we definitely wanted to have you on whenever we were going to talk about Urasawa series, and I think this is a really fun one to start with. Oh yeah, definitely. It's it's great that there's something that's so accessible and easy to get into for Urasawa compared to many of his other series, which can run for dozens of volumes. So this is a, a really wonderful starting point. Yeah, a nice single volume work, uh, with Sneeze also coming, I think, in October. I think those are going to be like really good, like nice, compact Urasawa goodness for people to like dip their feet into his style of storytelling. The perfect gateways before Asadora comes out. Indeed. And that voice you've heard is, of course, our utter returning guest slash co host, Velor GTZ. Or just the general lurker who's always around <laughs> when you guys are recording. That also <laughs> is true. 
Leonard, you're uh, also a big fan of this series. Yeah, I mean, I kept up with the series when it uh, was serializing in Japan, and it was actually the first Urasawa manga I ever actually finished, mm-hmm. which is kind of embarrassing, because I've started, like, <laughs> Monster, Billy Bat, and a bunch of other Urasawa works, and I just never get through them because I get busy and forget about it. And they're also quite big. <laughs> V-Lord, it's okay. Um, this is technically the first um, Urasawa series I finished too, so wow. don't 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 feel too bad. <laughs> hey, nice. We got some first time experiences. We got some seasoned experiences. Nice, nice mix there. But yeah, I mean, Mujirushi is definitely an interesting one because it is both typical of Urasawa in terms of some of the themes it expresses. It's also atypical in terms of the kind of story it is in terms of setting and the characters he's kind of using. I mean, we previously saw Urasawa do kind of his own spin on a classic property with Pluto in terms of reimagining Astro Boy's greatest robot on Earth storyline. With this manga, though, well, to get into that, let's just describe the overall premise. It's about a originally a sandal maker named Komoda and his daughter Kazumi. They try to evade taxes because they're thinking, oh, we're the only people who are actually paying uh, what we need to on taxes. So we can evade them this time. But they get caught and they get, you know, a bunch of penalties and their property is seized. And because of that, they can't finish making their sandals. So they have a bunch of useless sandals. So later, they overhear in a bar some guy saying, oh, you know, the American presidential candidate, Beverly Duncan. So hilarious. Like, she is just a riot. There's going to be so much demand to make fun of her, so I'm going to be producing masks, but I need a factory. Komoda volunteers his factory. But just as things are getting to production, Beverly changes course and becomes a more respectable politician, so there's not as much opportunity to make fun of her, and so all the interest in her dies down. So Komoda is left with boxes upon boxes of masks of this politician he can't use, and also a ton of debt from a lot of different creditors and debt-collecting agencies. And that pushes Komoda to his breaking boat, I mean, he almost tries to commit suicide by, like, jumping onto train tracks, but then a crow crosses their path and leads them to the French Research Institute, who, awaiting them there, is none other than the famous chess-spouting conman, Iyami, from the Ozumatsu franchise, here in this manga, dubbed the director, never explicitly called Iyami except in the translation notes in the back of the Viz version, but very obviously the character. And so I think that brings us to, I guess, where we want to start off in terms of the context of when this manga was produced. Because in terms of like some of the stuff referenced here, I think that is definitely very important, because this manga came out in late 2017, and the Ozumatsu-san series, which basically revitalize the franchise that you know had came out a few years prior and basically i think the second season would have just finished or it, it, it i think it was airing right or it was airing right at the same time yeah it was actually just starting so this 
manga started the same month the second season started airing. So this was very clearly kind of a tie-in to that as well. Like, they were trying to go hard with new Osamatsu stuff at this time. But in addition to that, this manga is also another collaboration with the Louvre. The Louvre reaches out to a bunch of manga artists to do manga about the Louvre, to collaborate with them. So the premise of this manga is that Ayami, you know, famous Francophile, like he is trying to convince Komoda and Kazumi to steal a painting from the Louvre. And so that's how they end up going there. And that's how the Louvre as a setting ends up being used. So that's also very interesting. And then, of course, we mentioned the presidential candidate, Beverly Duncan. Very obviously a pastiche of both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in both face and hairstyle and a lot of the things said about the character. And so obviously that's, you know, just the political climate of the time. We're just, we were like a year out from the Trump presidency. So, yeah, yeah that was just like funny political commentary from Rosawa there. It's it was very interesting, like like finding out that Iyami was going to be one of the characters within this Louvre manga because it was announced primarily just under the pretense of it being a collaboration with the Louvre, which isn't something new. Like there have been so many others, like Hirohiko Araki doing his Rohan at the yeah, Louvre manga, Rohan at the Louvre, yeah. Cats of the Louvre from Taiyo Matsumoto, the yeah. the recent Eisner winner, uh, and Guardians of the Louvre by Jiro Taniguchi and the uh, Mona Lisa bonus chapter of Innocent from Shinichi Sakamoto. There are so many of them, but they're all using their own properties, like generally existing characters from their things or just their their overall art style to explore some ideas related to the Louvre. And yet here we have Urasawa being <laughs> nostalgic as as he is in so many of his other works, talking about something from his childhood and also tying that in with whatever it is that he's working on currently. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, a very interesting mix of different, like, influences to tie in with not just one, but two different, like, ideas and franchise interests. Which, yeah, it makes it kind of a unique thing, because it's like, you got a Louvre manga, but you also got Iyami in here, and it's drawn by Urasawa, and he makes, like, one of his signature mysteries using Iyami as a character. Which is really fun because Yami, as a character, is a habitual liar. So to unpack, like, the truth of what's going on and the truth behind his lies, even though a lot of them are very blatant and transparent, is still really, really fun. And yeah, definitely the promotion of this and the reality of, like, what the manga was about definitely caught me off guard. Because yeah, in the promotion, they did not mention that Iyami was going to be a character in this at all. It was really just about Urasawa is making a Louvre manga. It's going to be like a short manga. Like, I remember on the Amish Revolution forums, my friend was saying, oh, a short manga. Maybe it's going to be like around the length of Pluto. And of course, it's much shorter <laughs> than that. But not off the mark in terms of, you know, it is like a reinterpretation of like a classic manga character, much like how Pluto was. Which, yeah, when that first chapter, you know, came out and we found out about, <laughs> hey, Iyami, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And that's mm -hmm. definitely like a selling point is that, hey, it's like the character of Iyami, like recontextualized and we're seeing him in kind of a, a different light, not just as a gag character, even though he is very comedic. But by the end, uh, there is some surprising heart to this story that I, I think Casey uh, in his Twitter like article that he wrote to reviews really put it best. It was a real slate of hand 
that was like definitely the manga's greatest trick. Mm-hmm, for sure. It, it's just it's just so fun seeing uh you know see, seeing this character who you know if if you're familiar with Osamatsu at all like you, you know like how full of shit this character always is. But even I guess even with that Osamatsu context in mind, like uh, Urasawa still like manages to make Iami seem so like mysterious and fantastical, and even like an an even more interesting of a character than he actually is, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, there's this whole tread that is trying to kind of misdirect you. A lot of red herrings that are trying to present Yami as maybe having more going on than the plan that he gives to Komoda and Kasumi. Like, perhaps that he is actually a longtime art smuggler based in Japan. And there's this whole subplot with this investigator who's suspicious of Ayami based on, like, a description of who the actual Japanese, you know, mastermind behind the art heist is and of course Iami is not the mastermind as the conclusion is and the manga ends with like going who the heck is he <laughs> and I think the conclusion you just draw is that Iami is Iami he's just uh there isn't he isn't actually that more complicated than you'd want to think like he, he really just is as simple as he appears yeah like upon like uh, upon rereading it I, i've read it a few times now that the the english version has been out partially in preparation to talk about it but i found that like the story overall exemplifies many of the strengths that urasawa has with stories that he writes where mm-hmm. he's able to build up many different types of hints and clues at things that might end up being misdirects and then by the end of it the the final chapter out of just nine chapters in this book that's under 300 pages <laughs> managed to tie together dozens of little threads that have been that hinted at throughout the series and i think it does a really good job showing how he can like utilize those strengths as a writer and how sometimes even with these a shorter story like this it can be even more satisfying yeah, mm-hmm. it all comes together very cleanly by the end. Kind of surprisingly so, because there's there's also this subplot about presidential candidate and basically this manufacturer of mini nuclear weapons being in cahoots and that being a potential, like, oh, this is a big deal conspiracy. And that is resolved in a very, like, funny way that kind of de-escalates the situation just kind of abruptly, but very amusingly. So, yeah, that kind of surprised me, especially because, like, when I was reading it the for the first time, you see all these different plot threads, especially like the political subplot. For one thing, where you're just like, okay, how is this even going to tie into everything? Like, <laughs> yeah. how is this going to work? And by the end, like, it's a very humorous like convergence by the end of all these different plot threads, but it just kind of like makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that Urasawa perhaps intentionally is playing upon your own expectations of what you expect from his stories. Like, you're expecting this winding political thriller with multiple layers of conspiracy on top of each other, constant danger. You're expecting, like, a story to evolve and become so much bigger than what it appears to be on the surface. But actually, by the end, the opposite is true. Like, the grand story that Yami regales Komoda and Kazumi turns out to have a much simpler truth behind it. And that is another recurring theme behind Urasawa's works, is 
kind of how memory shapes truth and reality, and then kind of trying to get at and figure out the truth behind things. And in this context, in this series, it ends up having a really sweet revelation. Yeah, I think there's there's a great humanity and an optimism in a lot of Urasawa's yes. works that I appreciate, which is, I, I find it interesting because I've seen his works described as pessimistic many times. And I think he himself mm. has talked about a pessimism in part, maybe in his worldview or in his writing. And while I can understand that to a point, I I never take that away as the the full message or meaning of any of his stories. And yeah, I think that is something that really draws me to him and mm. his writing. And that humanity, I think, is expressed incredibly well, not just through the writing, but also through the way that he is able to draw faces. Oh, most definitely. Like. With both uh, Kasumi and Iami, the director, I think that their facial expressions mm. were the highlight of, of this book for me yeah. when it came to the artwork. Both with her, uh, mm. her natural inquisitiveness and how she's so precocious and trying to ferret out how the director seems to be telling lies at almost every single occurrence. And he does not care much for how she seems to be picking up on that. <laughs> and just their, their little <laughs> glances at each other whenever, d- during these conversations, made me laugh so many times, seeing how well conveyed they were with that art. Oh, most definitely. Yeah, I mean, Urasawa's expressions, his, his character designs are always such a highlight. I love his rendering of Iami here, for sure. Like, it was such a treat to see his reimagining of the character but also yeah kazumi's character design is also really nice too and i do really like the back and forth between kazumi and iami and whenever kazumi brings up very like valid points of hey this picture of you shaking hands with the french president it's not in paris that's not the eiffel tower that's the tokyo tower and aren't you like giving him like something like a, a chopstick and then he's like always whenever kazumi's like calling him out he's like saying edelors what of it you know just trying to easily dismiss and say oh well you know if you don't want to listen to my story you can get out you don't have to stay here but of course like komoda is so gullible and so desperate like he makes him stay and listen to the story and totally buys into it yeah (laughs) poor guy but yeah i totally agree with you also with the optimism in urasawa's storytelling i think that's definitely evident here in terms of the political messages, especially that Urasawa <laughs> comes to, like, more optimistic than the reality uh, in terms of how things play out with the protests at the end. But, yeah, no kidding. Yeah, I mean, also that things will get better for the characters. There's darkness in the world uh, in all of Urasawa stories, but good always triumphs at the end of his stories. There's always, like, an ending that shows, like, you know, people coming together embracing their humanity and empathy you know that helps people move on and make the world a better place like i think back to the ending of all his series like they end in a really like positive place despite all the hardships the character goes through like even the ending of billy bat like is such a sweet ending i I don't want to to sidetrack and just talk about his other works but i know like particularly i've heard criticisms from several people saying that 
they they're like, oh man, I love Urasawa's stories. He's I love how he's able to build up such an intricate plot with a web of characters and things and make you love them all. But I don't know, he's just not the best at endings, and that is something that I wholeheartedly. What? I've I mean I've heard that dozens of times from several different people, primarily in regards to Billy Bat, but also regarding Monster what? with its kind of ambiguous ending what? and and 20th Century Boys, and I wholeheartedly <laughs> have to disagree with that because I it, it, like I do think that there is a lot to unpack with those three endings in particular but if if you're like analyzing how the the characters have been acting with each other and what the the overall themes that are being portrayed are I can't see any way but a hopeful optimistic way to interpret a lot of those and I think that's that's my little soapbox of I appreciate that people have read Urasawa, but I think they should like his endings better because they are good. I totally agree. Like that completely astonished me. Like I, I can see why maybe, but I just completely disagree. Like the endings of all series are just so poignant. I think, I think they all have really great conclusions that especially the ending of monster. Like, yeah. <laughs> that is such a perfect way to end. Little things. note is a uh, 20th century boys. I felt had some, uh, wiggle room where I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't love it, but then upon reading it again and also watching the the movie trilogy that Urasawa was a writer on, I think that it fleshed out and did a better job of communicating what the manga was saying. Mm. So I I, I think Twentieth Century Boys is an interesting case where it's like okay he did write the movies as well, and I think that the second movie is a mess because they have to cram like nine volumes of manga into a, into a movie. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that'll that'll do the that. The third movie in particular has a a really wonderful ending that changes a little bit from the manga, but I think doesn't change it in a way that it's a retcon. It changes it in more of a a way that conveys the core of the story a little bit better. That's so awesome! I really gotta check those movies out. I, I really want to see like where that third movie ends things that it differs from the manga, especially. But. Ah, there's so much to talk about just Urasawa's <laughs> storytelling in general. Yeah. But I guess to get back to Muji Rushi, I mean, I think, again, like that's the thing that sets this story apart compared to the other stories is that it doesn't escalate in terms of like the winding treads, like they all kind of coalesce and simplify the more you read it. Mm-hmm. And... A lot of that is because, you know, the grand stories that Iyami tells, like, they are just kind of tall tale, simple lies. And so there isn't really more meaning behind those until, like, you know, they go to France and they meet characters who are familiar with someone who previously had a relationship with Iyami. And then we kind of learn more about that. And then by the end, find out what's really been going on. You know, again, that was really an interesting, sincere place to take the character. Is that, like, his ambition, his motivations were very romantic. Like, genuinely. I was gonna say, um, something I just want to put out there is that, uh, I I think one of my favorite parts about Muji Rushi in particular is that, uh, and I mean, obviously, like, usually the joke with Iyami in Osamatsu is that, you know, he's never been to France in his entire life Mm because he's a bum. Uh, and a con man, but uh, man, he sure he sure knows how to sell France to some to people who have never oh, yeah. been there. <laughs> like I, this 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 was 
not just a good ad for the Louvre, but like <laughs> ma- this was basically just an ad for France. Like it made me really want to take a trip so badly. Yeah. Yeah. He spends a few pages just talking about all of the famous sites and places to visit in France, and like, yeah, God, that that sequence is so good. Like he's just walking and strolling around France, like, and yeah, I mean, he has guy. such a vivid imagination. I think he definitely studies France a lot. I mean, that's the thing I really liked about. The series and what I liked about Urso's interpretation of Yami is that it is like an interesting kind of recontextualization of like why Yami is so invested in France is just like this romantic kind of dreamland of his that he yeah. just loves imagining being there and exploring, but he can't ever actually go there because as much as like he likes to present himself as refined gentleman, like the kind of reality of Yami as a character, like especially you know in the early Ozamatsu series is that Yami is actually quite, you know, poor and he doesn't have a passport. He just doesn't have any way to actually travel to France himself. So he just makes up this fantasy stories of like being able to go there. The fact that he, you know, he has been there and tells these tall tales to just kind of, you know, keep that dream alive. And that is another theme of this series is that dreams are like what you make of it your reality is like what you make of it so and you got to visualize those dreams to make them happen and so that is what iami is doing and that's kind of the lesson he teaches kazumi that actually does end up paying out because it helps her escape basically the closet the cops lock her in later there mm-hmm. with that sequence where iami is like just waxing poetic about france and how he loves paris the city of flowers like i i really appreciate i love the the kind of ethereal dreamlike quality that it has of him prancing through the city and enjoying it and it is even <laughs> funnier in retrospect when you later find out that it is entirely likely that he has never actually been there and looking at those pages again in that light it's like, oh, yeah, this does seem to be much more like a like a, a dream or an imagined setting because he's not interacting with any of the the people around him and they don't seem to notice him and it's a it yeah, I noticed that upon reading it again and it, it made me laugh a bit. Yeah. As humorous as it is, there's also like a tinge of sadness to Yami as a character and the fact that he has this dream that he can never actualize. I think one of the most poignant panels is just a small panel is like during the backstory with Kyoko at the end when he's when like they are talking about uh Kyoko asks him, No, don't give me like this rock. You've gotta come to France and then give it to me. And there's just like this he doesn't say anything. We don't even see his face, but like there's just this text spoon that, you know, has ellipses in it. And it's like just this kind of silent acknowledgement that Yami probably will never be able to actually bring that to her and give it to her in France. He will never make it there. And so that's kind of, you know, the motivation behind his entire plan and the reason why, you know, he's helping Komoda and Kazumi, but he. He helps them, and they actually help him realize a dream he himself can never achieve. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that you can give Iami such a such an interesting like interpretation as a character from Urasawa really goes to show that like Iami was really like the star of the original Osamatsu. Well, specifically the '80s series was where yeah, he and Shibita yeah. were like the main stars, and then those monsters were, the, were in the background. But mm-hmm. yeah, like, uh, the, Yami is a really interesting character. There is, like, a depth to him in, that makes the comedy with that character really interesting. But also, in this story, you could expand on that to 
paint him as more of like a tragic comic figure. I also mm-hmm. like, yeah, like it's kind of interesting. Oh, go ahead, Aiden. Oh, I was like I I was going to switch and talk about a different character. Mhm. Oh, so I was really glad with Kasumi as ostensibly the lead of the series as well because I th- mm-hmm. think that one of the things that has also really stood out to me with a lot of Urasawa series is how he writes stories that are written for adults to read or people who are older to appreciate, but a lot of the times they will have children as protagonists. And the way that he writes kids feels kind of nostalgic and reminiscent, but also Mm -hmm. the, a lot of the the kids that are his leads, be it Kasumi or any, any of the kids within 20th century boys have this sense of individualism and being defined people. And like like mm-hmm. Kasumi just has a lot of wonderful little like inflections in her her dialogue or talk the ways that she like is inquisitive about things and cares about her her family and and uh, about Michel and when she meets him in France and mm-hmm. it it grounds the story really well and I really like that she is the the lead of the series and it gives us a window to look at Yami through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the kind of adults in her life, like Yami and her parents are kind of consumed by these fantasies and she has to keep a foot grounded in reality and say, this is possible. No, this is not possible that you're going to get in trouble in this. But she genuinely cares about these people, especially her dad. Like she is, you know, considering letting him go through with this heist because she knows that just this dream has given him hope uh, and that has taken him out of the dark place he was where he just had lost the will to live and was going to commit suicide. And she doesn't want to lose her dad. So if like this gives him a reason to live, like she doesn't want to take that away from him. But she knows also that this is going to put him in danger. He's not going to succeed at this. And Mm -hmm. then later, I think a nice subtle detail is that at the end, you know, when she's talking with Michelle and she's talking about like how, you know, she's still visiting the director, like she gave him French souvenirs. And I like that she, you know, kept up that relationship that she did like turn around on uh, Iami, like after being so skeptical and suspicious of him after like kind of. But maybe just realizing that there is some truth behind, like, his words about dreams and visualizing those dreams. Like, mm-hmm. there is, like, a heart to that person. Uh, what I like about Kasumi in particular is that, you know, obviously she, she is the one to, like, kind of keep some of the adult characters, keep their feet on the ground. She is the more grounded one, obviously. But uh, I like that she still feels like a kid too mm-hmm. in some ways like uh I think the moment that really got me was uh when her dad's asleep uh, he's dreaming about how the plan's successful and everything and uh you know and and she does recount how like you know her dad was going to kill herself and how you know that that really almost brings her to tears and she just mm-hmm. she 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 just wants her dad to be able to succeed you know she wants her dad to come back from like this like hopeless state that he's in and like this something about something about the way that um urasawa drew a lot of her expressions in that particular moment really made me feel like it really brought out her i don't know what you would call it like it, it really made her feel like a kid still at the end of the day like this is you know no, no matter how adult she may act more than 
maybe her parents at the end of the day she she still feels like a kid who cares about her father yeah she's vulnerable like she's in a tough spot it's kind of depressing too when you think about it because like she's essentially been forced to grow up here like yeah even at the beginning of the story they mentioned how like before like their mother left like kasumi got like a bunch of money from her to like hide from her father yeah it's like she's having to bear all this responsibility because like Kamada has just like went off the deep end. He's not thinking logically at all. Yeah. As upon their arrival in France, the like her father and her are like eating with the with Michelle and his grandmother and I think that scene also is a really great example of their characters all interacting with how in this case while Kasumi has been like she is ostensibly the person who grounds a lot of the story and and keeps people kind of rational she's still very much a kid here and she's very excited to talk about france and try out different french foods but also excited to hear that michelle can speak some japanese and then the the way that he is also still like michelle is worried and kind of suspicious of these people who just showed up at their house and the packages that have showed up there that he doesn't un- doesn't know the contents of and seeing the the interplay between people speaking different languages having one person who can interpret and her childishness of an excitement there it, it was a, it was a very fun dynamic mhm yeah i think that was really nice i also like the kazumi as a character is like the one character who like pretty much always tells the truth she's always like honest about how she is feeling and also like about herself like when they first meet michelle like komoda is trying to lie to him saying like he sent the packages and then double back on that and like kind of tell like these half truths but kasumi is like outright trying to say like no we don't know kyoko and then later she just explains the entire truth to michelle as it went over his trust. And so, like, I like that as well. Like, just the fact that in this manga, like, all these other characters, all the other characters, like, even the ones with good intentions, they are all, like, telling lies at different points. Like, Kazumi is the only character who always, always truthful. Yeah, like, even Michelle, like, he yeah. does eventually lie to Kasumi later to, like, get her, like, out of the picture so mm-hmm. that she doesn't get in trouble. And, like, he's even kind of, like, more kind of, like... I mean... Also, think about the fact that him and a lot of characters lie to Madame Bordeaux and say, like, oh, her singing isn't bad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, the singing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so, like, like, like I think we've talked about the the kind of the setup and then the the character's arrival in France. So I think we we could move on a bit to talk about the just the 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 third act of of this this book and how it uh, plays in towards the ending. Yeah, the third act is basically the heist, and basically they kind of tell Komoda that the plan is we are going to give everyone out, like, these masks. We're going to say that, oh, hey, there's a fire drill going on, so when this fire drill happens, wear these masks. And the signal for that is going to be when this Vuvuzela plays. And so when the Vuvuzela plays and everyone puts on the masks, that's going to give him the opportunity to grab the painting and then stash it in basically the attic of the Louvre. But, of course, the real plan is just, they're going to go through with this, but they're going to stop Komoda from actually taking the painting. They're just going to all escape while everyone is masked. And so 
that is essentially what happens. There's complications in the fact that Michelle, of course, like like his firefighter friends take Kazumi away and lock her in like a closet so she, you know, is out of the situation because also on the scene is like, you know, police detectives that like the Japanese policeman who's suspicious of the Yami has called up to kind of investigate and to have a picture of Kazumi Komoda. So like then once Michelle like realizes this, he kind of goes to try and find Komoda so he can evade the police and evade capture because he doesn't want no Kazumi to lose her dad and stuff because he cares about this kid. And eventually they succeed. Of course, another part of this plan, like kind of key part is like the put the rock that Iyami lied and told him was like a part of the statue originally back on the statue, which, you know, as it turns out, was never a part of the statue. But they do actually succeed in doing that. And in the conclusion, like it's been there six months and no one has noticed. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, a, a part of this everyone putting up mask things is that it applies back into the fact that he made all the Beverly Duncan masks. So everyone's wearing these Beverly Duncan masks. And they're all yelling boo because that's the sound the Wufusella makes. I love how Michelle can just like replicate that yeah. with his own voice. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's, a, that's a weird thing that is a, like just slightly uh, lost in translation a bit where like looking at the, the katakana for the how the booing is like spelled out in Japanese and then like look stuff up a bit. It feel it seems that like the like the Japanese spelling for how you like enunciate the the vuvuzela sound or a crow sound or just general booing out of dislike are all kind of similar. They all use like boo or buga or, or mm. similar arrangements. So the him yelling like buga and then boo is <laughs> supposed to be reminiscent of the vuvuzela or crow, but it's not the best. Uh, That's another motif is the, the crow comparison. And Michelle was also compared to like a crow when he was a kid. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's difficult to summarize a book like this because there are dozens of disparate little threads that all, <laughs> all play together, but it's like, oh wow. Yeah. yeah. Unless you're going, unless you're going page by page, it's difficult to even summarize <laughs> it without <laughs> doubling back all the time. I was saying boo-ga. <laughs> <laughs> Boo-urns. Oh but I love when, like, when Kasumi tries to replicate the sound that Michelle made. It just ha- causes everyone to just start saying boo instead. Yeah, yeah, they think that's part of it. So that also plays into the whole conspiracy thing we talked about, is that, you know, the two, like, invent- reporter guys were like, oh my gosh, we hooked this picture that had Beverly Duncan, you know, meeting with this mini nukes manufacturer they're they're in cahoots like this could be like a huge dangerous thing for the entire world if we try to go go public with this like we could be killed like this is so dangerous and then they they see like footage of everyone at the Louvre wearing the beverly duncan mask and like yelling boo and they're like oh we're not alone <laughs> like we might be killed but the truth has to come out we're not alone take a stand against beverly duncan and then that's where the optimistic ending comes out is that like the that does actually like inspire people to care and protest beverly duncan and then it's revealed that the opponent during the presidential race like the whole sexual uh, misconduct scandal was like something that she made up and uh that was a lie <laughs> so that adds like more 
you know, fuel to the fire of anti-Duncan sentiments and protests. And so, like, actionable change is happening because of the protests. And that's the optimistic message that it's not happening in reality at all. <laughs> all of the, the ridiculous things that happen. That's the fantastical thing. <laughs> wow. I mean, I know that this, this book yeah. was published two years ago or so in Japan, like when the, the final mm-hmm. compiled version came out. But man, if there's anything that feels unrealistic right now, it's the... Oh yeah, that that political colluding with private business owners to bomb countries. Oh, Elon Musk didn't tweet about that just a a few days ago at the time of this recording. Yeah, that that's the that's kind of funny how that's the most fantastical part about this story is that politicians are actually uh, politicians are made accountable. Yeah, like oh, sexual misconduct, state (laughs) scandals, causing a presidential candidate to. You know, drop out of favor. Oh, wow! That if only, if only. Man, what a not... what a fantasy world they live in. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, but the crow motif is also another interesting thing because you know, Ayami has a crow named Maria, and then when we go to France, Michelle's grandmother have a crow named Maria, and that's connections important because that hints towards like the relationship that uh, Ayami had with Kyoko, who we never see until like the end flashback but like uh, that's just the hint about that and then like the there's this uh, sort of uh obscure i guess pop culture reference and like the reason why the crow is called maria is that it's named after maria callus and so it's like in japanese like katasu callus that sounds similar mm. and then in the english version they kind of don't explain that except for the translation notes and just says Oh, it's only fitting that a crow is named Maria. But that was also like an interesting thing. So I think that also perhaps also hints towards like uh, the French connection there because Maria Callas was like an American singer. So it's... I don't know, maybe <laughs> she sang a lot in France. Maybe that also goes to show that that's another hint towards Iami not being a genuine, you know, intimate and familiar with French culture. Yeah, it's another one of these threads that, in discussion, if if someone hasn't read it, it might sound strange, but I promise that the the, the book is very cohesive and, and does <laughs> pepper this stuff in in a way that that makes sense. But man, there's there is mm. it's it's dense. There's a lot going on. Like the yeah. you, you mentioned that there was the stone that Yami asked the, the Kamado mm. family to to place back on this statue, and that's an interesting like bit of this story because. The very first page opens up with a, a, a color page of yeah. you see a hand holding the stone, dropping it to another hand with like a a colorful background behind it, and you see like take this, I want you to have this or something like that, and then you see the stone dropping and bouncing a bit, and then Yami starts running away, and it's followed by a spread page of him running through like like through an alleyway, and oh, those are so good. Seeing that, it's yeah. like you re- can realize later. Like those pages are all sh- they're showing different things. The the bottom half of the page yeah. is, a, is a completely separate scene, as is the 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 next one, and the the thread of that stone that has the 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 essentially the sign of dreams etched onto it, which mm. is the the three teeth of Yami on the front. Yeah, that also later coincidentally is like the fireman's emblem at the end. Yeah, oh, that was so funny. And so so I think. <laughs> One of the that's one of the strengths of Rosawa's storytelling is I I really appreciate how he's able to utilize paneling in a way that 
can be it flows completely naturally as a story and you you can recognize upon reading it that this is a mystery right off the bat you you don't understand what's going on but you're assuming that you'll get an explanation and that's very similar for so much of his writing oh yeah but with this uh, later you find out okay these images that are on the same page here and then then the one following it are from possibly even years apart or some of them might not have happened in reality it could have been kind of a precursor to his made-up story about how he was in the Louvre trying to to place this stone there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do love how Urasawa plays with, again, time and reality in that just first page, showing two different scenes side by side. I love that the rock dropping is not confined in a panel space. It's like in this just a void between these panels, like completely free form, no details, as to signify the transition between the reality and fantasy parts of this like story. Oh and man. I really thought that was so clever. Like it's just a subtle detail, but it's like really, really great use of, you know, the panel space. I hadn't picked up on that, and now that you're mentioning that, it, it makes total sense. And it's also I, I feel like I should have understood that a little bit better because that's not something that he does very often at all. He is generally confines his art to the panels very strictly. I mean, there will be sound effects or word bubbles that will go outside the panels and sometimes things will break them, but it's incredibly uncommon for there to be something to be drawn completely out of, out of the bounds of the paneling on the page. Yeah. So, so the the scene with the stone and everything at the very beginning, that was such a great transition. I totally agree. Um, and this is kind of a totally different thing, but it made me think of that little bit from um, JoJo Part 4, the anime in particular, that scene where uh, where Jotaro's on the phone, then he puts it down and then immediately like gets into the taxi he's going to get into right in the same frame. Like I thought that was... It kind of reminded me of that on the same level of like, wow, this is some really great... like visual transitioning storytelling whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. it was just it was just so good like i i immediately like picked up on that like oh wow we're clearly transitioning from like two different scenes using this using the stone like i i really love that beginning so that mm-hmm. also that reminds me so the beginning of the sixth chapter of the series shows yami running through a hallway that's supposed to, like you're supposed to think it's a louvre and then the the stone drops and bounces and he looks back at it and then uh, the next page shows him grabbing it and running away before transitioning to a, a panel showing it in a hand where you, you see that it's Michelle holding it. And in many Urasawa series, he will start the first page of a chapter with a black border around the panels rather than a white one. That's not a hard and fast mm-hmm. rule, but you see it in Mujirushi. There are a lot of, not every chapter, but some of them have this black border, and so does that. And that's a trick that is used for denoting flashbacks in a lot of manga. So sometimes that'll be used in 20th Century Boys or, or things. But it's it's used here, and I like how it it can feel like th- this might be me reading too far into things because this is what I am bound to do with with things like this. But I, I think that it's a formal element of the composition of the manga. Both like like as far as how it's printed and how it is composed, and I think that it is something that offers cool ways to think about interpreting a scene and how like the context that it's in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know if this is a 
speaking of great transitions, this might not be a very good one, but I do kind of want to move on a little bit to but while we have aided on, I kind of want to hear your thoughts on some of the lettering because mm-hmm. initially reading through this, I was I was very surprised that um, that Viz didn't uh, re- do their usual like retouch or re-lettering with a lot of the uh, uh, sound effects. Like, and please please correct me if I'm wrong, but like I was really trying to pay attention. I mean, because there are, there also aren't really like a lot of sound effects throughout this book, but the very little that like were there. I didn't even see any, like, notes as to, like, what they meant or, like... Yeah. Because usually, like, when... Just for example, when whenever they do, like, their Shonen Jump manga, like, simul-publish chapters... Yeah. Simul-publish don't have the read-on lettering, because there's just not enough time to do that, but they changed that for the graphic novels. Well, no, but I, w- I was going to say, they, they don't do that, but they but they usually at least, like, leave a, like, yeah, translations a little text. Yeah, translation of the, the sound effect. Yeah, I, I, I'd yeah. love to talk about this. So, th- one thing that has been interesting is that, like, so, Urasawa's works have been localized in a handful of different ways in the U.S. So, starting off back in the, the late... 80s, there were, there was one volume of Pineapple Army that was published here and it was flipped and had like fully redone sound effects that were hand drawn and everything. They looked very nice. But then it took mm. well over a decade for more of his works to be published here. And that was when they started publishing individual volumes of Monster. And those were published without sound effects translations on the page, whether it would be subtitled or fully replaced. And they started doing it with an index in the back of the book that would list out both the transliteration of what the Kana characters are saying, and then also uh, like a translation of what you could interpret that sound as. And that is what they have done with Mujirushi as well. So there's, there is a glossary in the back and all of his recent releases in English, which would be the perfect editions of Monster and Master Keaton and uh, 20th Century Boys, those all utilize glossaries and mm. this is not a choice that i like i don't love it i think that it is difficult for like people are not going to utilize that glossary and i, I that's no, the way i feel yeah. in general mm-hmm. i think that it's an interesting anomaly to actually have that there but it is not practical if you were to have maybe like a paper insert that you could take out that that listed that that might be a little bit better but I like mm-hmm. there that does like for a little comparison yeah. though the 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 first release of 20th Century Boys that that Viz put out did have fully replaced sound effects and so did their release of Pluto and those are I think on the opposite ends of the spectrum where I do not like how the sound effects look in the old version of 20th Century Boys they use a very limited mm-hmm. palette of fonts primarily just bada boom and manga temple <laughs> <laughs> and I think Bada Boom has been on too many t-shirts for me to ever want to see it in manga. And Manga Manga <laughs> Temple is Manga Temple is just bad. Manga Temple is no longer even available for purchase from the guy who created it. I don't I think that the very out of date. The sound effects in that version are not representative of what the original sound effects were, and they cover up quite a lot of the artwork that they shouldn't have to. But Pluto, on the other hand, is absolutely gorgeous with the the lettering that is done there because the sound effects in most cases are still done by using 
a font to to place the letters but the the letterer went in and drew hand drew like scratchy lines and like created breaks within the lines and added little scribbles that went a long way to actually replicate the way that Urasawa draws sound effects and it nice. looks incredible and i guess like that doesn't <laughs> that that's that's pluto though so i like i guess overall it's a long way of me saying that i think that the intentions are good with having a uh, a glossary in the back of Mujirushi and other recent releases. I don't think it's practical, but it does preserve the artwork, which it is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this doesn't usually do glossaries, so it is an interesting choice for Urasawa. I think like one of the other notable manga that I can remember seeing a glossary for a Viz book is Excel Saga that had like an extensive glossary in addition to translation notes at the end of every volume of that series. Some Kodansha yeah. series have done it. I think that the the original oh, yeah. digital re-release of Battle Angel Alita included a glossary, but when they printed the books as five hardcover omnibuses, those they had stylized subtitled sound effects in and then the the hardcover version of akira mm. from mm. them had a glossary as well interesting with like if i could say something about the lettering of the book like outside of the the lack yeah, of lettering yeah. for sound effects i really really like it all of the the recent urasawa releases since i think like 2014 or so have been lettered by steve dutro and it was interesting is that he also lettered the original release of monster back in the single volumes and since then, mm. the, like the, the new version utilizes a new translation, and he's got a font that he uses on very many of the, the things that he's lettered that is his own personal thing. I haven't ever spoken to him or anything, but you will never see this font outside of a book lettered by Steve Dutro. And it's wow. I, I really like it, because it's, it's, a, it's a very pleasant, highly readable font that's got just nice rounded letters, and I think it stacks very, very nicely. If you if like if you compare the perfect editions of Twentieth Century Boys to the previous printings, which used Wild Words, which is just about I think if you had an alignment chart of fonts, it is the true neutral of comic lettering fonts, mm. and it's fine. But I I think that the 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 font that Steve Dutro uses is very readable, and I have a hard time thinking of other fonts being used with Urasawa work after after seeing so much with it. That's really cool. Yeah, like yeah. there are a few, th- there are a few anomalies that are introduced because of that. Because I think the the book is kept very very simple. It's just this one dialogue font for all dialogue. Uh, there are other instances of like a typewriter font for narration and some other fonts for inserts of locations and fonts used for sound effects that are within bubbles that do get translated. But there, hmm. there's just that one single Dutro font for everything. And I've got some copies of Mujiruji in Japanese and have looked at them, and there are more fonts used in the Japanese version, particularly a separate font used for telephone or radio dialogue, and then another one that's used for flashbacks. So Mm. some of the complications that arose is that uh, essentially italics are used in those cases within the English edition. So italics are used Mm. when it's a flashback, and then italics are also used for telephone, like TV or radio broadcasts. And then italics are also used for a foreign language being spoken. So if there are French words, it's said by a character who is speaking Japanese within the story, 
those words are italicized. And I think that if I were to want to letter something, I would probably come up with a different font for those other occasions, just so that italics can have a single meaning rather than multiple. But it's really not something mm. that I get upset seeing. It's like, that's a very, <laughs> it's, a, it's a thing that I have strong preferences on, but do not think that others need to be held to those <laughs> with. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's a great thing to pick up on. Yeah, flipping through it, you're right. Like in the last chapter, especially the italics are used for both the text boxes explaining like, here's what happened with all these protests against President Duncan. And then it's used in the flashback. So, yeah. Yeah. What's interesting, like uh, Steve Dutro also lettered the Dark Horse release of I Am a Hero. And that was interesting because mm. it used a, a similar, he used the same font for it, but this is likely an like an editor or translator decision for foreign dialogue being spoken in that it was kept in like the characters like the 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 angled brackets essentially and that's a convention that is more common for western comic lettering than it is for for manga so it was interesting yeah. seeing that i like talking about lettering and i don't want to get too much into the weeds <laughs> <laughs> but can you identify the font used for the boo that michelle gives cuz i thought that was really interesting too I would love to. I don't know that one. I think that is a font that I have seen in dozens of things that Steve Dutro has lettered, and I always want to know what it's called, and I have never mm. been able to figure it out. I guess maybe another Dutro original. That's a thing. I don't think it is, because I've, I'm pretty sure I oh. have seen other books lettered by other letterers that use that font, and I have never been able to figure out what it is. But I feel like... I, mm. like, like I, I've wanted to know that he uses it in he uses it for sound effects in Vagabond a lot, and I really love how it looks there. Ah, oh, nice. I mean, it definitely was great to use for this scream, like to give kind of like this shaky, rough quality to it. Yeah, it fits like the jagged text balloon too. Yeah. If you, really uh, like. what, what's interesting is that the for both of the times where it's a like a very large boo from Michelle, the exclamation points at the bottom of those bubbles are the original ones drawn by Urasawa. Ah, oh, nice. I mean they yeah, so they're left in there. so good. Yeah. They look so good next to each other that, you know, you wouldn't be able to tell. Like they're like completely different fonts. Like that's like his hand lettered exclamation points with this font from Dutro. That's yeah. really great. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like. I, I'm very pleased that Viz has taken the the effort to make sure that all of the books from Naoki Urasawa are lettered consistently. So it it gives them a very nice, like comfortable feel that they're all so so similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it adds a really great flavor to have you know all of Urasawa's books pretty much you know share the same kind of font aesthetic from you know the singular letterer i think that is really really appropriate for like you know someone as unique in his sensibilities as kurosawa mm. so th- this is just a question from uh, someone who hasn't uh, read a lot of translated uh, urasawa works from viz so so i i guess out of all the stuff that viz has brought over like how 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 many of urasawa's releases that we've gotten over here actually utilize like the original I guess the original uh, Japanese sound effects besides Mujirushi. Everything but Pluto and the old version of uh, the old version of Twentieth Century Boys. Yeah. So I guess the mm-hmm. both editions of Monster, the new edition of Twentieth Century Boys, 
all of Master Keaton and now Mujirushi. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, yeah I, I, I like I like that now, especially with this new edition of 20th Century Boys, which was a, uh, I, I knew it was a newer edition, and I knew there were going to be, you know, like you mentioned, like a, a new translation and, and and them keeping the original Japanese sound effects intact. Like, I, as soon as I found out about this edition, you know, I was like, nope, I, I know I already bought volume one, but I'm going to wait for this new edition. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of stuff I really care about, so. 20th Century Boys does utilize the same translation in the perfect editions that it did in the previous ones, but there are a number of little, like, touch-ups and changes to it, primarily shortening, mm. like, okay, changing so changing ellipses so at the end of a like, box. Or anything, yeah. yeah, no, it's like, oh, they, okay. they, they change the ellipses at, it, at the end of a sentence of a, or, a, or a narration thing to be a period, or uh, changed a reference to Pikachu to Pikaboo. Which was what it actually <laughs> said. It, which is what it actually said in Japanese. It was just strange that it said Pikachu in the first Viz edition. Wow! To begin with. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, that's really strange. Yeah, that's just like like a random pop filter reference to the translation of the original. Yeah, yeah. Wait, so did Monster also use the same translation in the Perfect Edition? Nope. Monster was completely redone. Uh, translation by Camellia Nie in the the new edition. The the previous edition oh, okay. with the single volumes, I think, had like upwards of ten different translators working on it with a few adapters. Wow! So it's like you will have like th- I haven't read through the entirety of that edition yet. I do plan to and want to try to like notice differences and stuff with it because that's gosh, I'd like to just deep dive on Urusawa stuff. But uh, they, they had the same adapters working on them at the time, and that was also right around the time when Viz dubbed the anime into English. And as I look at it, the English script within the dub is very similar to the English translation in the manga in a number of places in that wow. edition. So it seems like something that okay. might have been done with like in tandem or with communication between the people working on those projects. So I I could understand that if they if they skewed the manga towards the dub or vice versa, uh, that with the the new perfect editions they they likely wanted to have something that was more cohesive and singular to its own purposes. Uh, that mm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The dub is also great of that anime. I really, really like uh, oh, yeah. uh, Keith Silverstein as Johan. Wonderful. Love him. Oh, man. Oh, I have yeah. not. Man, I wish the monster anime was still able, available to stream. I remember just binging it on Hulu. It was really great. And yeah, a great dub. Someone oh, man, go beg yeah. Discotech to relicense it. Oh, oh that, would, that I would love that. I would buy that so fast. Like, I. I mean, I haven't read a lot of Urasawa's comics, but I definitely remember watching at least, like, the first half of that monster anime when it was uh, on sci-fi back in the day. That was really mm-hmm. great. Yeah. yeah. Regarding the, like, the production, similar to, the, like, the lettering, the the English edition of Mujirushi is a single paperback that's in, like, their Viz Sig, uh, like, size mm-hmm. format. But in Japan, mm-hmm. there were two different editions of the book. One that was a standard-sized Tenkobon book size and there was another one that was essentially like phone book paper size where they split the book into two like smaller thinner books one with kasumi on the cover and one with iami on the cover and then had a black slipcase that you could put it into and that version had like like uh glossy nice white paper and uh like 
the vellum page, similar to the English edition where you can flip it up and it's a see-through page that covers up the first cover page with the crow. And it was very cool mm. to see that the the English edition takes a lot of the it takes a lot of its cues from that special edition rather than just the standard one because in English we have every single color page from the series replicated and there's yeah. a, the the vellum page at the front and this book has French flaps which is pretty nice <laughs> <laughs> so appropriate yeah well, that's oh, pretty great wonderful. the secondary cover with the Yami is located on like the the French flap on the back so you can still see that cover despite it not be, like being split into two books. And yeah, I, I, wow. I'm incredibly impressed and pleased with the, the way that they handled the production of this paperback because it is just genuinely nicer than like the standard edition that came out in Japan. Yeah, mm. man, we, I got to take up a copy of that print book because, I mean, we read it from a digital review copy. So, I mean, we did not get any of those awesome details. So. Yeah, I definitely want to have this on the shelf. If only Right Stuff would ship our order. <laughs> <laughs> I have it on order at Right Stuff and had to. I, I, I have it on order there, like multiple copies of it, just so I can give some to friends. And they still haven't gotten in stock. So I ran to Barnes & Noble the day it was released and just got another one myself because I didn't want to wait. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, though, being able to read the official translation legally digitally is also a treat too just also in the sense like in the in the last chapter in the ninth chapter like the first two pages where michelle is screaming boo when you read that vertically like the text balloon of his boo lines up pretty well so it's really fun to like scroll down because it, they all like are like kind of in a single line it's matched up like in a single line on the uh two pages which is, like, something that I don't know if he, like, intentionally, like, drew it that way. I definitely don't think so. I mean, like, they'll match up. I can say with fair a fair amount of certainty that he did not intend for it to line up that way. Yeah. Because I don't think he intended for it to be read digitally ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Most <laughs> like, definitely. It's, I mean, especially yeah, yeah. in a vertical format it, instead of, you know, traditional two-page yeah. flip from, you know, right to left. But, yeah, I mean, I think that... Like, it's like a fun, like, kind of accidental, like, really cool thing that happened just reading it digitally. Yeah, the page composition like with, being like, able to see that. The, the composition of pages and how they appear when you turn the page and have two pages next to each other is something that Urasawa has spoken about being a, a major factor in how he understands paneling and the flow of a story. And he he's spoken about how... The switch to reading manga and web comics on phones and being able to scroll vertically is something that is very foreign to him and not something that he draws his comics with in mind. So I think, yeah, it's definitely seems like a, a happy accident that it was able to line up like that. Yeah. I mean, to touch upon it accidentally and do it really well like this, I think, you know, maybe you could experiment with that. That'd be really interesting to see. Yeah. But yeah. Like, I'm also just happy that this book has like such beautiful color pages. Like his watercolors are so so poppy and like awesome and vivid. Urasawa has been doing digital coloring, so despite his like resistance mm. to digital distribution, he does color a lot of his manga digitally. So like he did that with much of the color pages in Billy Bat, but in for Mujirushi in particular, he switched back to 
doing watercolor and painting for the color pages in it, and it looks wonderful. Oh, yeah. Like, especially sunset scenes, like in uh, the page Wit, Komoda and Kazumi, like, trying to find Yami's place in the beginning. Like, I love his vivid kind of reds there. Like, kind of just the red tinge on everything. But also, like, his strokes in, like, you know, kind of more dramatic scenes. Like, the the page, I think, at the beginning of uh, Chapter 6, where it's, like, Yami's shadow as he's running through the hallway. And we just have these furious, like, purple-bluish-black strokes to indicate the floor. Like, that looks so good, too. Oh, yeah, that's actually... that. That page is is exciting to see because that was one that was included with the that was where the the book split between one and two in the mm. special edition. So that page had mm. a, a vellum page over it in the second volume, and it's very very nice to see that they went to the effort of also including uh, a page that is like not from this edition at all. It's like a like an extra bonus page. That's awesome. It's been a while since I read. The other Urasawa series, I think that this is, like, my first time, like, really seeing Urasawa's color pages. So that's another reason why I found it, like, to be a real, real treat. Definitely. It's 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 one of the, the reasons that I'm so pleased that we've been receiving the, the perfect editions of many of his works in, like, the Kanzenban mm-hmm. format. Because the individual volumes generally don't have color pages replicated in them, like the mm-hmm. earlier editions of 20th Century Boys and Monster. Yeah. So... The, these perfect editions just have them all replicated very nicely. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess at this point, uh, do we have any uh, other like stray thoughts we want to get out there before I think we should probably wrap up soon here? Or oh yeah, like there are a few things that I uh, thought of or, or so. Like I, I while oh go ahead, yeah. Reading the the book again in preparation for this, I listened to music by Sylvie Vartan. The the Artist that oh same here that yeah, Yami yeah. Uh, brought up and it was great it was a very pleasant and enjoyable music and since I can't speak French I was not distracted by any of the the lyrics I could just r- relax and, and listen to it and enjoy it while while reading the book that was that was really nice I'm mm-hmm. definitely going to be listening to more of her music <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. and yeah just I think like overall I I really enjoyed. Mujirushi, like the sign of dreams, as a as a good example of how Urasawa is able to tell a story that has dozens of strange little details and threads that can all tie up so well towards the end. And I think that when compared to some of his longer works, what th- th- there is a a little bit of a a lack in development of some of the the primary characters as far as just understanding their whole character, but that's because mm-hmm. it's a single book. And what the yeah. trade-off is, is that I think it's able to make all of the the little plot bits be more efficient and just work really well together to come up with a very satisfying package. I agree. Yeah, it's just a really solid, you know, short story. Like, I just thought it was crafted and uh, and plotted out very well, as expected from Urasawa, so... Yeah, a compact Urasawa mystery series that is, like, more lighthearted than his usual fare. You won't have any heartbreak of your favorite character, like, dying or disappearing for a long <laughs> while in this one. 
And it's an interesting reimagining of like a classic manga character adding like, again, a tragic thing to him that was really sweet. And also, while most of the characters don't necessarily have arcs, I do think the central arc Kazumi has about like being in a tough situation and then getting out of it by just like Yami's words, like reaching her and being able to just like visualize getting out of there and then being able to act upon that like i thought that was also really well done too so overall it's just like a nice sweet story about like this little girl trying to help her dad and then it has a very optimistic happy ending where everything works out the family gets back together business is booming the the corrupt politicians in the world are being protested against and actionable change is happening politically in the world and the supposed like con man actually also got his like sweet ending too. Which was, yeah. Honestly, it's like it's a really good uh, Urasawa appetizer. Yeah. Like, I think like you could show this to someone who hasn't like necessarily read an Urasawa work before. At least get him like them sold on like the type of stories that Urasawa tells. Yeah, this is the croissant that you dip in the tea <laughs> of Urasawa storytelling goodness. That that does uh, that what you said there, Vilar, just reminds me that um. Towards, I think, one of the early chapters, uh, Mizuguchi, the detective, mentions that they're looking for this the, the lead of this art uh, forgery ring. And they, they he says, oh, yeah, he's fluent in Japanese. And this that's at the <laughs> end of a chapter where you see that he is very much not fluent. In, not, not, oh, I said Japanese. I meant no, French. French. French, French yeah. yeah. He's very much not fluent in French. He is speaking using, no. it's like, oh, we oui, we oui, uh, bonjour merci the beaucoup most basic and that, that, that what that plays into is at the very end they reveal oh here here it is here's the leader of this art forgery gang he's a guy who's fluent in french and he has buck teeth and he wears a bow tie and mm-hmm. it's like oh that was actually set up early on that this is just another separate thing that seems to play out in there and I thought it was very funny because the the picture that is shown of that character who is the actual mastermind looks identical to an archetype of character that has been in so many other Urasawa stories <laughs> as a villain of the guy who has long hair and a mustache and wears suspenders and is kind of like a shifty con man, be it Chuck yeah. in, in Billy Bat or Manjome in yeah. 20th Century Boys or yeah. a similar character in Pluto <laughs> as well. It's a, it's like he could not resist within the last like five pages of his series throwing in that same like villain archetype character. Oh my gosh. And that made me very, very happy. <laughs> Especially with the slicked backed hair with like the one little strand coming out with that guy. Oh my God, the Chuck oh, is so, so good. <laughs> yeah oh that's amazing <laughs> yeah again a lot of a, a lot of really fun story elements that come together in a fun way Urasawa playing with kind of your expectations of what this story is where it's gonna go and then yeah it's full of really fun surprises oh man yeah if you if you want to read something that makes you want to go to France and try a cafe au lait uh read this book <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I think this is another great addition to the oeuvre of not just Urasawa, but also the Louvre of manga collection from all these other acclaimed authors, Araki and Matsumoto. So yeah, Mm -hmm. this was a really, really fun book. A lot to like about it. 
despite its one volume length and because of its one volume length. And thank you so much, Aiden, for coming on and talking Urasawa with us. Absolutely. It's been a blast. I like Urasawa's manga means quite a lot to me. It, he was not the first artist that I read that really connected with me, but he's certainly the one who I've connected with the most over the years. And it makes me so happy to be able to share his work and talk with people about it. And if you enjoy any of his work or are looking to get into stuff, there's also another book coming out from him in October from Viz, which is his short story collection, Sneeze. And yeah, I've got a copy in Japanese that I can't read, but it sure looks very, very nice. It's got dozens and dozens of pages <laughs> in color. Some of the short stories are even entirely in color. So please look forward to that. Ooh. And also oh uh, his, his current his currently running series, Asadora, is going to be published in English starting in January. And this is a landmark occurrence because it's the first time any of his ongoing series have been published in English while they're still running. Normally, we have had to mm -hmm. wait uh, 10 plus years for any of them. <laughs> so it, I'm just overjoyed that we'll be able to to keep up with, with that at a, at a relatively good pace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so exciting. Yeah, there's a lot to look forward to if you're a Urasawa fan with, you know, both Sneeze and Asadora. And the continuing release of the 20th Century Boys Perfect Editions, which, you know, I'm sure once they're all out, we'll finally get around to our 20th Century Boys podcast. I mean, we're going to do podcasts on like all of Urasawa's because, you know, I love them all. And we definitely want to have you back to talk about each and every one of them. Oh, it, mm -hmm. it means a lot to me. Thank you so much for, for, for thinking of me and having me on for this. Oh yeah, we'll definitely have you back on once we uh, once we get ready to cover 20th Century Boys for sure, so look forward to that. Mm -hmm. But now, like Iyami, I think we're going to skip off into the distance while screaming, Shay! Shay! <laughs> Actually, before we do that, we should, uh, we should let Aiden, you know, get to plug his stuff. Oh. Or I guess, you yeah, know, yeah, let, yeah. let people know <laughs> where you are on the internet. Yeah, I, I'm on Twitter at KoiBoyBboy, kind of like a misspelling of cowboy bebop i did once i talk about lettering a lot i love manga lettering gosh lettering is cool and i like my cat a lot post pictures of my cat so that's that's where i'm at you should you should print that on a t-shirt gosh lettering is cool gosh, I, <laughs> gosh lettering is so cool Gosh, lettering is so cool, and I love my cat. I just want to put out there really quickly, for anyone who hasn't listened to it, we also, uh, we mentioned, I think we mentioned it early on, but we had you on to talk about the Naoki Urasawa exhibit that happened at this point, I think, a year or two ago? Yeah, we recorded that January 2019. Yeah, and I still think that's like one of the best episodes of our podcast, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think you did a really good job of just taking us through what it was like experiencing that exhibit. And also you, you got to, you know, uh, you got to go to a panel, you know, with Urasawa there in person. And that's probably the best part of that discussion. And, uh, if anyone hasn't listened to that, uh, I would highly suggest people listening to that. It was the first podcast we had aided on. And, uh, yeah, again, I, I cannot say enough, like, how much I love re-listening to that episode. It's it's just such a great experience. Thank you. Yeah, that was really, really awesome. But, yeah, definitely check out Aiden and definitely, like, look forward to future appearances of Aiden whenever we talk about more Urasawa stuff. And 
lettering in general. Like, I definitely want us to hold a lettering roundtable at some point to just gush over and explore the world of lettering. Yeah, it's like, while oh, I, yeah. I love lettering and I've, like, practiced working on stuff, but I'm not a professional by any means. But if you ever want to have an episode talking about lettering, I could certainly introduce you to some people who would love to talk about it as well. Oh, oh for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. We definitely want to have that conversation. Like, it's something that's been in our, like, to-do list for a long, long time. Yeah, th- there's 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 way too many people we could have on for that episode <laughs> in particular. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to do. But for now, I think we'll head into the sunset to wrap up our show. Allez-vous and au revoir. Ce soir je serai la plus belle pour aller danser Danser Pour mieux évincer toutes celles que tu as aimées Ce soir je serai la plus tendre quand tu me diras Thanks again to Aiden for coming on the show to discuss Mujirushi with us. He had a great conversation about the story, his reinterpretation of Ayami, and of course Steve Dutra's lettering, a topic he's super passionate about. It was a great conversation about Urasawa and what makes his manga unique and how Mujirushi fit into all that. And I really enjoyed the conversation and look forward to more Urasawa discussions in the future. But that about does it for our you know, review, so we're gonna go into some greedy shoutouts, and this week, I don't necessarily have anything related to Urasawa or Mujirushi, necessarily. A lot of uh, my shoutouts this week are kind of Adult Swim related, just because I've been really into the Adult Swim stuff recently. But I think the most important piece to shout out uh, to start with, is the Run the Jewels Holy Cow Lama Vote Special. This aired on Adult Swim just a few weeks ago. It was basically, you know, a concert from the Jewels that was all politics teens, election teens, basically encouraging people to get out and vote. There were some really powerful lyrics in their songs here, some really powerful moments, like, and I don't want to spoil things, but the, the I can't breathe moment was devastating. Mm. And then the... The lyric that, look at all these slave masses fronting on my dollar. Like, damn, that's such a good lyric. That was such a good song. So, I mean, it's just a really awesome music special, like an awesome uh, performance piece, like of all these great songs. And what a very good message that, yeah, go out and vote. By the time this podcast is posted, you have less than a week left, like your mail in. Deadline is out. Don't rely on the post office anymore. Like, go to your uh, county office, wherever you submit your ballots, like in person, or go on election day. Uh, just make sure to get out there and vote because it is very important. 
But on a lighter subject, uh, you can also vote on something a little more frivolous, but also more fun, maybe? The Tanami Audience Takeover Bracket. I've shouted them out a while ago, but I want to bring them up again because, indeed, uh, the streams are all being archived. And they're also being put up as podcasts on the Adult Swim podcast feed. And there have been some great conversations so far, some great insights into anime from folks working on Adult Swim. Obviously, this whole event is hosted by Maxine Simone, whose Game of Seto Machu Picchu season two is going to be broadcast on Tanami, which is really exciting. Uh, and also, you know, they've had a lot of people who ha- obviously are work closely with Tanami and anime on Adult Swim in general. Like, of course, Jason DeMarco and Gil, they gave their impressions and insights to like how certain shows fared in the history of Tanami and like the introduction episode. They also had Kim Manning on, who is the vice president of programming and scheduling at Adult Swim. Like, she gave her insights into how a certain anime is very including dropping some reveals like how pop team epic apparently didn't do too great on its run in tanami boruto apparently skewed to younger than they had hoped for in terms of audience so there were some really interesting nuggets of like insight there into like how certain shows did uh what they favor in certain shows like what shows they consider when they bring on the block and one of the most recent episodes, uh, like the most recent episode, they brought on the YouTube team from Anime Balls Deep, which is a British UK based, uh, collective of anime YouTubers. And that was a fun one. Like they had a lot of passionate opinions. Uh, and it was just fun listening to them talk about like getting into anime in the UK and like their thoughts on like anime's popularity now, what things have become more mainstream, and then just a reaction to see what shows moved on in the bracket because there have definitely been some surprises and some upsets. So that's been a lot of fun. And of course, we're entering like the top eight right now. So, you know, definitely head over to the Instagram to vote for your favorite uh, shows that are remaining. Like, what will win? Bebop, MHA, DBZ, Ma, Demon Slayer, who knows? Like, you gotta vote and you gotta check out, like, who's gonna make it into that final two. Because honestly, it could be a surprise. Let's definitely check that out. Something actually giving Dragon Ball competition. That's a, a Dragon Ball has had very close competition. It only beat JoJo's in the second round by one vote. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's just funny because I think the last time we brought this up, we were we were both pretty sure that Dragon Ball was probably gonna win, or at least I thought so too. But yeah. Dragon Ball Super lost in the first round, Kai lost in the second round, Z is still in the game. But wow. again, the matches it's had have been close. At least the second and third round matches it's had were close. So potentially, you know, I could see it being toppled. Like I don't think that is a far-flung possibility. It, like, it does not seem to be as domineering a front-runner as I expected. Hmm. That is interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, but Bebop also is super strong. MHA is super strong. Like, I'm definitely curious to see what is going to make it into the final two and what's going to be the ultimate winner. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Bebop might be one of the final two yeah, I mean, because Bebop has been beating some of the most popular shows, like, right now. It 
beat Attack on Titan. It beat One Punch Man. Mm. It beat Hunter Hunter. By the time we're seeing this, I think it's going to be confirmed. It beat Hunter Hunter. So next up, it'll be facing MHA. And I think, you know, it's been up against the most popular modern show so far. I could see it beating MHA. I mean, its history on Adult Swim might give it just that power. Obviously, it was the first anime on Adult Swim. It literally aired day one on Adult Swim and the last show to progress in the first night on Adult Swim. I mean, it has the history there. It has the love, the passion, even two decades later. So I could see it. I could see it even topping MHA since this is very a niche-specific bracket and the voters are all passionate tanami and adult swim viewers mm. that 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 one sounds like a closer race to me i I think either one could win personally yeah but yeah i mean these scenes have been a lot of fun really entertaining and interesting so yeah definitely check them out also i want to shout out a few uh looks at some other good shows Aaron on adult swim Jacob Chapman has been doing these blogs on various things that his patrons, you know, basically recommend them on his Kofi or in Patreon. And one of the shows he got to take a look at was Joe Para season one. And Joe Para is a great show. Oh, yeah. And I think Jacob had a really great take on how the show focuses on Joe kind of being excited and interested on like these kind of mundane things that a lot of people might not really think about, like pumpkins uh, having souls and then kind of dealing with like these idea of mortalities through like throwing this pumpkin off a waterfall, like the way he would like to go out. And just the season one arc of Joe kind of grappling with the fact that some of the things he cares about might not be as important as other things in the world, especially when he gets into his relationship with Sarah. And Sarah is, of course, like this very uh, paranoid person worried about all sorts of dangers in the world. And that's kind of the season one finale of like, you know, Joe kind of thinking about the stuff Sarah told him is going on to be worried about and just kind of reconciling like what he cares about, what she cares about and what he should care about. And I thought Jacob just had a really great analysis of the season's themes and also kind of tied it into kind of his own perspective as like someone who really cares about anime and cartoons and analyzing that and isn't usually engaged with stuff in the real world or like, you know, politics and all these other concerns in the world like really invested in entertainment that's what gives you know them joy and that's what he thinks about and focuses on and just kind of that reconciling you know this is something that you're passionate about and like what you love to think about and what you tend to think about versus stuff that when you're growing up as an adult what you have to come to realize you do need to start thinking about and taking more seriously than you had before so i, I like that take that personal take he had on Joe Para. I thought it was very interesting. It gave me a lot of food for thoughts. So I definitely want to recommend uh, that essay because it is a really great piece on the show. Mm-hmm. Can, can I just say Joe Para, good show. Yeah. I watched season one as well. And like, if you like Adult Swim stuff, but you also like stuff that's like wholeheartedly, like really earnest and even like a little wholesome, like, then I I'd say definitely go watch it. It's uh it's a surprisingly really 
just down to earth, nice chill show, actually. It is the most sincere show on Adult Swim for sure. Mm-hmm. Like for this show, it's it's almost like because sometimes when you watch Adult Swim stuff, you always kind of expect like a curveball to be thrown at you at some point. You yeah. Know? But like the the thing about Joe Para is that like the the curveball is that there's no curveball, and that's kind of nice yeah. actually. So yeah, uh, I just finished season one like a few weeks ago. I need to I need to get on season two pretty soon. Oh yeah, season two delves uh, into even more like really great territory. Uh, a lot of personal stuff with Joe's character that he he deals with. So yeah, that was like the heart of the show and the fact that it is about this guy who is living in this you know suburban town where things are generally peaceful and he has all these other things he's think about but then he ends up getting confronted with some things that kind of shake like his worldview like his sense of the way things are sometimes and i i like the show confronting that but it doesn't confront that in a way that like you know, puts Joe down. It's like very sincere and on Joe's side, and like him exploring these things and trying to work through these things. Mm-hmm. Speaking of a show that also really explores like the emotional depth of its characters, though of course this show is much vackier and goes into more insane places. Obviously, the Venture Brothers, you know, recently canceled, mm-hmm. but it's much beloved, and there's been ton of great, you know, retrospectives analysis on this. And NPR did basically a retrospective on the show with interviewing, you know, Jackson Public and Doc Hammer for their thoughts on, like, the show's development, like, its place in pop culture as a show that really stood out for it being a comedy-focused show, but that was, like, really serialized with, like, these very deep emotional arcs, but also, like, was so unabashed in its love of pop culture and its references and, like, all the different inspirations that made it up and how it really was kind of a trendsetter for other shows that would come later, like Archer and Rick and Morty. So I thought it was a great retrospective on the development of The Venture Brothers, how the show evolved over the years, and its impact on pop culture, even though it's not often discussed on the same level as, like, the big hits and of television, but it is undeniably one of the most influential, like, shows of the past 20 years. Like, a very under-discussed, underrated uh, part of the DNA of, like, modern TV. Oh, and yeah. it's ends with an optimistic place on, like, where Venture Brothers could go, like, whether it could return. I thought the thoughts on, like, having where the show has ultimately ended be the ending was very interesting. Like, the thought of why public and hammer are disappointed with that is like you know the the last episode of the last season ends with like hank like going off on his own and you know their comments on that were like you know that's not how we would ever want to end the show like the venture brothers is like a show about this family we would never want to end the show with like one of the characters like leaving the family like going away on their own love and family is a part of the show so like uh, the ultimate ending is like them being together. I thought that was a really poignant point that I would like to see them one day return to give that ending to the show that it deserves for sure. Oh yeah, I actually just started watching Venture Brothers on Hulu to hopefully maybe like give it some views. Had you seen the whole show before? Oh or? no, this this is my first time all the way through. Really? Yeah, oh. I like I I watched a handful of episodes like way back in the day on Adult Swim like. You know, that th- that was one of those shows where, like, 
I'd be up like really late at night or like I would like wake up in the middle of the night with my TV on and like it it would just it would just be on the Venture Brothers. So I usually just kind of watch it in passing like, huh, this is an interesting show. But uh, yeah, I like I had heard so much about it. And like I had heard like how many people like actually really loved this show. And especially when like the news of it getting canceled or whatever broke out. And I saw how many people like were really genuinely upset about it, and I, I that that was that, that that was the thing that kind of pushed me to start watching it recently. I think I'm like I'm like eight episodes into season two at this point. I, I definitely I, I think it took a bit for me to kind of like get into it, but like I'm very interested in like watching more of it. And hey, I mean, if you if you want to show your support, I, I think at this point, you know. Just giving it as many views as you can on like wherever it's like legally streaming is probably the best way to go at this point so far. So yeah, though sadly it being on Hulu in the first place may have been one of the factors in its cancellation. Yeah, since uh, Warner wants all their stuff on HBO Max. But regardless, yeah, show the show some support. You know, give it views, talk about it, watch the DVDs, buy the DVDs, and watch them. You know, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But uh, my other shoutouts are related to the Venture Bros. Shannon Struffy made a great video essay on the Venture Brothers and analyzed the theme. Like, it's often said the Venture Brothers is a show about failure, but, like, Shannon really goes deeper into that. The Venture Brothers is, like, a show about these really, like, broken people who are trying to find their place in their world in terms of, like, their relationships and, like, dealing with all this baggage and trauma. Like, it's really about dealing with a bunch of trauma and trying to move on from it, especially, like, baggage from uh, a parental abuse, fa- like, specifically, you know, troubled family situations. So I think that was a really great take on it. And, yeah, I think Shannon did a really good, like, just analysis overall of, like, the the teams of the show and like the emotional complexity and depth of the character arcs and how it only just gets better and better as the show went on and to and goes to like very like poignant devastating uh places uh but also very fairly also points out some of the things that have not eaten so well in the venture brothers in terms of some of the humor and employees especially in the earlier seasons so I thought that was also a good note to do. But for an even greater, like, super in-depth analysis of Venture Brothers, you know, definitely you should subscribe to the Deep Ends Patreon for their Venture Brothers podcast. They've completed it. They reviewed every episode of the show. Like, it's spending an hour at least on every episode, like, really picking the show apart from all the character arcs, all the references. Uh, all the inspirations, background details on the production, like just it's a podcast full of love from two people who really loved it. And, you know, sadly, the deep end as a podcast seems to be over, like in their epilogue of the Venture Brothers uh, retrospective. You know, they Matt basically said that he's ending the podcast and moving on. I expressed a lot of disappointment in the state of Adult Swim in general. So... That's very sad, but I mean, the Venture Brothers podcast is definitely like a masterpiece of theirs, I think. Or at least, you know, I think it's a really great podcast series uh, devoted to dissecting the Venture Brothers and celebrating it. So, you know, if you're watching the show for the first time and you really want to dig into it, like, even more, uh, definitely, like, listen to that podcast like they did for every episode. 
uh, and it's it's a really great tribute to the series. Now, now, see, I I, I knew at one point they they decided to go on hiatus, but I, I I didn't know that like the show was effectively over. That makes me really sad because I yeah because I it, I, I, was I, I really enjoyed the blue, that. But yeah, I love the deep end. It was a great podcast. You know, uh, yeah, it same. really got me into Adult Swim in a big way. Like it got me to check out some other shows that I missed before. It really made reinvigorated my passion for the network and it got me super into it now in a big way like now i'm really more involved in adult swim related stuff now like the streams that they do and stuff so it got me back into the the culture of adults in a big way so it's sad to see the podcast uh end because they did a great job like not only looking at the history of the shows what made them work but you know the history of the comedy scene in general which is something i knew even less about than the history of these shows specifically so i I loved hearing those insights but yeah i mean on the the epilogue podcast matt does all but say that the podcast is basically over uh the patreon eventually like it's gonna become a thing where you can pay a certain amount to get access to the entire podcast rather than a monthly charge. Uh, it really seems like they're moving on from it, which, you know, I am sad about because they're, they really only scratch the surface of like all the shows on Adult Swim they could cover. Uh, so that is definitely disappointing. They never did any Asha, you know, they, they said they would, they never did it. I, I was honestly, I was really looking forward to them hopefully getting to case closed, you know? Yeah, you see, there were so many of the anime in particular that they hadn't gotten to. Mm-hmm. But even Adult Swim Originals, you know, there were so many they hadn't gotten into and multiple seasons of shows that they hadn't uh, finished going through. Like, they never did Harvey Birdman Season 4, you know? They did yeah. the other three seasons, uh, that was a sad thing. Mm-hmm. That uh, They've kind of put that, but you know, maybe, like, Venture Brothers, one day they've a little turn, but it's just like, it seems Matt J uh, right now has kind of retired from uh, the internet because he took down his Twitter. He took down the deep end Twitter, the cartoons one one Patreon and the YouTube channel. So uh, it seems that unfortunately that's over for now, which is a shame because uh, I really appreciated his insights on animation and comedy. They were always fascinating to listen to. So definitely give a shout out to him and definitely check out like, the body of work uh, that you can find. Like, the Deep End podcast is still out. Definitely listen to all that if you haven't checked the Deep End out before. And definitely subscribe to the, the Patreon to listen to the Venture Brothers show. Yeah, the Deep End's great. If you haven't listened to it and you love Adult Swim, definitely check it out. I mean, in general, just check out anything that Matt J and Steve do, just in general. I, I really loved listening to the both of them. Steve, I was also a big fan of from, like, the One Piece podcast and everything. And... I've even had the chance to like record with him on like uh, the Poltergeist report that uh, Doc and I do over the uh, Ask Backwards Anime Podcasting Network. Uh, he's a really cool guy, and again, I love listening to them on podcasts, and I, I just love all the stuff they do. So, if nothing else, check them both out. You know, you won't regret it. Yeah, definitely. But uh, that does it for my shoutouts uh, for this episode, and now I think we'll wrap up the show. Can I actually add one thing? It's not really absolutely, yeah. It's not necessarily a community shout out. It's more like a plug that I, I think I brought it up in our Muji Rushi discussion, but I forget. If uh, if you read Muji Rushi and uh, um, maybe you didn't know too much about Osamatsu-san going in, and you want to check out more stuff with Yami, 
uh, Crunchyroll, I think, has all of the original 1980s, like, Osamatsu-san series, mm-hmm. which uh, I-, I think they joke about in the reboot, uh, in the modern reboot, that, like, I- Iyami used to be kind of like the main character of Osamatsu, really? Yeah. I mean, he was in the 80 series. Yeah. So, I mean, I- I've checked out a few episodes of that series in particular. It's really funny. I, I- honestly, I've been kind of hankering to watch more of it. I, I need to make time for that. It- it's like a legitimately really, like, enjoyable comedy gag anime type thing. It's, it's just a fun watch. And if you need a fun anime to watch, um, then just go watch that. It's all on Crunchyroll, as well as, uh, you know, the said Osamatsu-san, but Osamatsu-san is specifically the the modern reboot that now has, like, a third season running. And, I mean, admittedly, I have very mixed thoughts on that series because I love season one. Season two, I'm, I was kind of down on when it was airing, honestly. I didn't think it was, like, super amazing or anything. Season three started off very interestingly. The self-deprecation was, like, at an all-time high. There, there was even a there was even a giant demon slayer reference in that first episode, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. I so I mean just just the general just you know if you haven't checked out Osamatsu-san, just check it out. Like it's I don't think like all of it is great, but I still do enjoy it. Like if if you're looking for something fun to watch just to kind of take your mind off things, you know something a little light, I would highly recommend it. Hopefully, we'll hopefully link in the show notes where people can watch it and everything. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think we could probably end the show there. We should probably mention that people can look forward to a special episode coming on the 31st, Lum. We want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, in just a few days after listening to this, I mean, you're releasing a few podcasts uh, this week, but we really wanted to get a couple ones out uh, before the end of the month, and one of those we saved for the very end of the month, because, of course, uh, last day of October is Halloween, obviously, and this manga has a very special event that is tied to Halloween, uh, and that manga is the comic from Kazuki Takahashi, and we did review the comic earlier this year on our Patreon with the translator of this manga, Stefan Kosa. And it was a great discussion, and we thought it would be so perfect to release it on Halloween this year, because the murder that takes place in the series, that is the mystery they're trying to solve, that took place on October 31st, Halloween 2020. Like, the timing was just too great to pass up, so we're having the special release of our Patreon bonus episode on the comic for you guys on the main feed and in addition to that we are also including you know some additional news roundup stuff and uh, additional review of another short one shot from uh, some great creator horror creators uh, Posca Demizu and Kaishirai their one shot spirit photographer so a good Halloween special from us this year for you guys Literally on Halloween. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely look forward to that. And, uh, you know, it'd be even better if this put up all the comic on the Shonen Jump app. They still haven't done it yet. Why haven't they done it yet? They should do it on Halloween. But we'll see. Yeah, it'd be such a shame for them to miss that timing. Like, it's just so perfect. Like, 
we can't pass up the opportunity. I hope Viz does not pass up the opportunity. It is one of those strange holdouts that they've translated completely that is not in the vault alongside Robot Laser Beam, which has graphic novels out, so I don't know why that's not in the vault either. I don't know, man. But regardless, regardless, yeah. I mean, look forward to that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I think now we can uh, end the show and... Uh... We should do that by plugging uh, our individual stuff as well as the podcast. Uh, Lum, where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lum Ramayasha on Twitter, and it's Lum Ramayasha, a variety of places like Animation Revelation and AnyList, wherever they say Lum Ramayasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my manga reviews on all-com. We've got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews coming out, so look forward to more stuff on there. And if you like the art I do for the show, the podcast thumbnails and whatnot, you can check out my art on my Instagram, Sid Artworks. All right, and as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter, at SniperKing323. I also produce a few other podcasts on the side besides this one, which you can find links to at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. I have a page dedicated to all my podcasts, and that's basically where you can find the rest of my stuff. But as for all comic and the podcast, you want to go to all-comic.com. That's where we post every episode of Manga Mavericks first, unless you are a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier... If you signed up for the $2 tier, you could have listened to this many months early, and uh, along with a few other podcasts that will be coming out hopefully throughout the next month, but uh, if you can't wait that long, again, $2 basically gets you early access to some select episodes of the podcast that we have edited before they're supposed to go up on our main feed. And uh, yeah, basically that's your best chance to listen to certain episodes of the podcast before anyone else. But if you want some, you know, if you want some newer content, you want to sign up for our $5 tier. That's basically where we upload a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. Uh, right now, we are doing a podcast miniseries called the Manga Mavericks Book Club uh, that we're posting every month where uh, we're specifically talking about a series we've covered on the Manga Mavericks podcast before, Saint Seiya, the original Saint Seiya manga from Masami Kuramata. I am covering that myself with my friend Doctor from the Ask Backwards Anime Podcast. It's our first time reading through Saint Seiya for the both of us. Soon, we're going to be posting our next episode covering uh, volumes 13 and 14. Uh, so we're we're halfway through Saint Seiya at this point. We've got another 14 volumes that have to go. It's been a wild ride. Uh, so if you want to listen to us fumble through Saint Seiya and uh, talk about how cool it is, uh, we're posting episodes of that, again, every month for $5 backers on our Patreon. Again, that's at patreon.com slash mavericks. It's really the best way to support us and what we do here. As for everything else, as for all comic, I should say, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow uh, Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mavericks. You know, we, we, we post excerpts of the podcast and whatnot. Also, sometimes some exclusive content every once in a while. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what did you think about Mujirushi and all of uh, Naoki Urasawa's works? Do you have any thoughts on uh, 
all the Adult Swim shows we talked about. You know, are, are you reading anything that you want to tell us about? Or is there any manga you want us to read on the show? You know, just email us about manga or the podcast or really anything, I guess. And uh, we'll read them on the show. We love getting emails and we will definitely read them on the show again at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. We're, we're basically everywhere. But on Apple Podcasts especially, uh, if you leave us a rating and a review, you know, it, it really helps the visibility of our show. You know how even leave us a negative review. We, we still appreciate really any feedback we get, if you so wish. But uh, yeah, that's basically going to be about it for the show. This has been episode 137 of the podcast, and we will see you guys next time for episode 138. Bye, guys. Au revoir.